scriptures. But the topic today is how the resurrection gives us victory over temptation. And uh, you'll notice, you probably see it down there in very fine print under the topic. I said this is a PIH sermon. Anybody know what a PIH sermon is? It means a pen in hand or a pencil in hand. In other words, you need to take notes on this one. Uh, the reason why is I'm going to give you four practical steps uh, to deal with temptation that have helped me through my life. And they're worth writing down. You can write them down in the back of your Bible. You can write them down. Uh, I, I would put it inside the cover of the Bible so I could always find it. But you could write it out here in the margin. You could write it on piece of paper, but these are such practical steps that I find myself going through them frequently, especially when I travel. There's usually a lot of different uh, uh, temptations when I'm on the road, and, and these are the steps that come to my mind. So I'll highlight those steps for you when we get there. But, uh, you know, first of all, we need to talk about the resurrection and, and just how do we actually know it happened. So let me ask you a few questions. Did George Washington ever live? Well, how do we know that? None of you are old enough, or most of you, I guess, are not old enough to have seen George Washington. And so how in the world would we know that? Well, we would know it because we read it in history books. We, we see it commemorated in works of art. We've, uh, we have numerous documents from him. We have copies of his first and second inaugural addresses, and his second one is very uh, interesting to read. Um, and so we have evidence. Well, what about the Holocaust that happened between uh, 1941 and 1945? Did 8 million Jews really die at the hands of Nazi Germany? Well, yes, it did. And we have a few people here who were actually alive at that time. But how do we remember or know for the rest of us that it happened? Well, once again, it's documented. Uh, there's, uh, there's people still alive who went through it. Uh, we have witnesses of it. We have their accounts recorded uh, permanently. There's museums that commemorate uh, the Holocaust, and, and it's just a fact of history. Well, what about September 2001? And now we're getting down to history most of us can uh, remember. Uh, we, we know that there were four planes that day that were hijacked by a total of 19 different hijackers. And uh, two of those planes, American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175, crashed into the north and south uh, World Trade Towers in New York City, respectively. Those were 110-story high buildings. I used to always, when I was in D.C., uh, my office that I worked in uh, was about uh, three blocks away, and I would always stay in the hotel directly across the street. And I remember every time I went, I thought, I just want to go up to the top of those towers and see what's going on. And I knew people that worked in those towers that were killed. And, and so uh, between 8.46 and 10.28 a.m., all four of these planes uh, uh, did something. And American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon at 9.45 in the morning. That killed 125 military personnel along with 64 people that were on board. Uh, United Flight 93 uh, was the last flight to leave. It was on its way to California and people aboard the plane who did not turn off their cell phones like they always tell you to do when you're on a plane uh, started getting calls saying, you know, you get off the plane, There's these three other planes have crashed and something's going on. And, of course, they were already in the air. They couldn't do anything about it. And we have recordings where one guy is telling his wife, he says, you know, we're about to 
We're about to storm the front of the plane. We have boiling water in our hands. Some people snuck into the galley at the back of the plane, boiled some water so they could throw it on the the hijackers as they attacked them. And he says, three of us are going now. And he told his wife, he says, I know I won't live through this. And uh, then you can hear as the the phone is uh, about to hang up, you can hear someone saying, let's go. And because of their bravery, uh, that plane, we don't know if it was headed for the White House or where, but we know that it crashed in a field in western Pennsylvania rather than a major target. And, of course, it killed uh, all of the people who were aboard. So that day, 2,977 people died. 10,000 were injured uh, because of the World Trade Towers. And uh, there were 19 hijackers. And we have that documented. Uh, I have photos of it that one of my friends who happened to be living blocks away took with his cell phone camera. He's always asked me never to publish those photos. He didn't want to ever see them uh, get any uh, financial remuneration for that, but he, he shared them with me, and uh, it was just, it was, it was a disaster. Well, how do we know all those things happen? Because they're documented, because we have written testimony, we have records. Well, how do we know the resurrection happened? Well, it's documented for us numerous times, and here is one of the best documentations. And I want you to pay attention to this particular documentation of the resurrection because of the numbers that are here. It says, For I passed on to you as of first importance that that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised up on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now this is interesting because Paul's saying the resurrection was predicted in advance. And he goes on to say, he appeared to Cephas, that's of course Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more 500 brethren at once, the majority of whom remain until now. So when Paul is writing this, most of those 500 people that had seen him all at once were still alive. By the way, you know, you take the right narcotic or you take the, the right opiate, you might have a hallucination, but 500 people will never have the same hallucination at the same time. This is irrefutable evidence. And it goes on, he says, uh, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one born at the wrong time, he appeared unto me. So if we do a little math here, basically he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the 12 apostles. And of course, Peter would be included in that. He appeared to 500 other people. He appeared to James and the apostles. And at that time, 130 more followers, Scripture tells us. He appeared to Paul. So at least 645 people walked and talked and ate with Jesus after his resurrection. Now that's what I call a bunch of eyewitnesses. You know, it's, it's amazing there are hundreds of sworn testimonies about the election fraud in the last election and nobody's doing anything about it. But there are 645 people that saw and talked with and fellowshiped with the risen and resurrected Savior and it changed history uh, forever. And it's not just documented in the Bible, by the way. Jewish historians that uh, lived at that time wrote about it and the effect and how it changed these timid uh, disciples of Jesus who were scared for their lives when he died to be willing to go out and die bravely for their faith because it changed them uh, power of Christ's resurrection. There were a lot of witnesses, so many witnesses in fact that if we held court for 24 hours a day with no restroom breaks at all, 
it would take us and let each witness testify for 15 minutes on a stand. It would take 128 hours to hear. So if we started right now, uh, hearing testimony of the people that had seen the risen Savior, gave each of them 15 minutes to talk, it would be Friday morning before we finished the testimony. So think about that. That's pretty phenomenal uh, when, you, when you consider it. So we know the resurrection is a fact, but what exactly does it do for us? What does it change for us? Yes, it's a fact of history. Certainly, why would we, re- we, would, why would we receive Christ in our hearts if he wasn't alive? Okay, uh, but, but what else does it do to us? And it, yes, it gives us a guarantee of our eternal future with God. The Apostle Paul said that the resurrection declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God with power. But it also gives us victory over temptation. And this is why I call this a pen in hand sermon. It's one you ought to take notes on because I'm going to give you four very important steps that you should do when you experience temptation. But I want you to see that Paul would agree with James that the uh, resurrection uh, makes a difference in how we live. Notice what he says in Romans 6 verses 4 through 11. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Some of you have seen me baptize people in the baptistry behind us, and as I'm laying back, I, I quote part of the scripture, buried with him by baptism into death. When I raise them up, I said that they may walk in newness of life, and that's part of it. He says, for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. See, as Brother Stephen's been pointing out in his series on Ephesians, a phrase pops up over and over and over again in the book of Ephesians. That is that we are in Christ. So when Christ died, our old man was crucified with him. And when he raised up, we, we got a new life at the same time too. He says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So if we we know that Jesus is alive and we're in Christ when he raised up, death has no more dominion over him. And he says that, for he that is dead is freed to sin. That means that sin can no longer have power over us. Now we can choose to sin, just like we can choose to do anything stupid. But the reality is, is we can't, be made to sin. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. He says, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves. In other words, here's the truth and you need, to, you need to commit this to memory and you need to live like it. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul would argue vociferously that the resurrection means that you and I don't have to sin. We are not subject to sin. So now let's look at our passage in James uh, in beginning at verse 12, and we're going to look uh, down through about verse 18. But let's read these verses. And we, we covered verse 12 last time, so we're kind of backing up one verse. But it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. We remember that word there means testings or trials. It says, For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, here's where we jump into some new area. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And the King James says, and cometh down, in Greek it says, is continually coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the first thing James deals with is where does temptation come from? Where does it originate from? And that's, that's important. And he says, first of all, quit blaming God. We, a lot of people want to blame God. and They blame God for putting them in a mess or they, they say, well, you know, God put me in this place and, and uh, I'm tempted because he, he wanted, me to, wanted to see how I would handle this. Quit blaming God for temptation. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted with God. Nobody should be able to say that. And there's two reasons why. He goes on, for God cannot be tempted with evil. So first of all, you can't tempt him. Now, let's just stop for just a minute uh, because there's a a theological point that's really part of a passage in Romans, but I'm going to make it here and this is free, no extra charge for a a truth from a different passage. But uh, the reality is, is Jesus Christ is God, right? And because he's God, Jesus Christ could not be tempted successfully. And yet, the Satan tried, didn't he? Uh, you, you remember after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, he says, why don't you command these stones to be turned into bread? You can eat. All you've got to do is say the word. And Jesus responded with a quote from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then he, he takes them up and he puts them on, you know, on a high, high temple. He says, once you jump off and, and uh, you know, surely... The angels will take care of you. And, and uh, this devil at this point is quoting scripture because he, he was quoting a little bit too. But Jesus says, you know, he says, you know, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He quoted from, guess what, Deuteronomy. Okay. Uh, three, actually, three different times he tempts Jesus. And Jesus, because he could not be tempted, because he had no sin in him, he had no sin nature from which to respond to that temptation. And by the way, every time he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, so before you think about, hey, we don't need the Old Testament, you ought to give thought to the fact that Jesus refuted temptation from the book of Deuteronomy. That Old Testament still has some value for us. But here's the thing. Um, occasionally, a dietary temptation will enter my house. Okay? And uh, so there will be something in my house that I know I shouldn't eat. There will be a special occasion. And somebody goes and get bluebell cookies and cream ice cream. And that Bluebell cookies and creams ice cream is there. I don't need it. I've, I've been a type 2 diabetic and I've healed that through diet, but I still have to watch it because I know I could go back into being diabetic if I abuse it. But when there's ice cream in the refrigerator, there's a temptation in my heart. And so what do I do to deal with that? Well, I do it. I've learned from my father-in-law over the years is that if I just go ahead and eat the ice cream, then the temptation will no longer be there. And, and, and so I have learned how to do that, and it's not there because, you see, when I'm tempted, I go to a certain point, and then I just give in to the temptation because maybe I don't have the character to totally resist. And sometimes in my life I've had better uh, success than others, and sometimes I can watch others partake, and then sometimes I'm just weak. Now, interesting thing, though, is 
the longer you go resisting a temptation, sometimes the stronger the temptation feels because you're putting it off, you're putting it off. Imagine this, if Jesus had been tempted with chocolate cake and that was something he couldn't do because he didn't have sin, that temptation could have been stronger and stronger and stronger and the devil could have worked harder and harder and harder to make it happen. And so Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, actually experienced a degree of temptation that you and I will never know because we give in before the temptation gets too strong. Jesus never did. So I don't want you to think that Jesus' temptation didn't count. No, it counts more than our temptation because he endured a greater level of it and yet still did not sin. But some people want to blame God. And so he says, no one should say, I'm being tempted for, by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now, now, by the way, why do we blame anyone? Think of... Think of life as having a balance scale. You know those scales that you see on the courthouse where Lady Justice is holding up the scales and they've got a balance in each and they tip one way or the other. What happens is when we feel guilty and our side of the balance scale goes down, uh, what we have to do is put things back in balance because none of us like feeling guilty. So what we do, rather than confess the sin and get it off of our balance scale entirely so the scale can go back right, we think let's add something to the other side so we find somebody else to blame. If we put enough blame on the other side of the scale, then it doesn't make our guilt feel so bad. So what do we do? We blame somebody else for the bluebell ice cream. <laughs> we blame somebody else for the chocolate cake. We blame somebody else for the addiction to pornography. We blame somebody else for our addiction to gambling. We blame somebody else for our sin because that's easier than dealing with our own guilt. We try to balance things out. He says, quit blaming God. Temptation's not from God. In fact is, he uses a Greek word, aparastos, which basically says God is untemptable. And not only can he not be tempted, he's untemptable. Uh, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our weakness, but who has been tempted in all things in the same way, yet without sin. Now remember, Jesus experienced a level of temptation none of us will ever know because he never gave in and we usually do at some point. See, God's character is just so holy that he cannot be tempted and he cannot tempt others. Well, we need to ask another question now. Is temptation from the devil? Well, I want you to listen to these comments by Jesus from John 8. He said to a group of people, some Pharisees actually, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He's a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there's no truth in them. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. But did you notice what Jesus never said? Jesus never said, the devil made you sin. He just says, you're of your father, the devil. You have a sin nature in you. You are likely to sin because of that sin nature, but you're still responsible for the decisions you make. You are the one who chose to do something Wrong, ungodly. You know, I'm making a lot of fun of bluebell ice cream and chocolate cake, but let's face it, we've all done bigger sins. How many of us have ever told a lie? Well, Scripture says you'll not bear false witness. How many of you have ever thought a bad thought about someone of the opposite gender and, and wanted to take advantage of them in a certain way? Jesus says if you even look after a woman to lust after, you've already committed adultery in your heart. 
How many of us have ever taken something that didn't belong to us? Well, you know, right there, if you've done those three things, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer, and so am I by that standard. So there is no righteousness in us, but can we blame the devil? No, we're really responsible for it ourselves. The devil, we choose to sin, but we don't blame the devil. Now, by the way, there was a famous comedian when I was growing up by the name of Flip Wilson. And he used to do this, uh, he used to put on a dress and he would do this character called Geraldine. And uh, she would say at some point at, at every skit, the, the devil made me do it. Now I'm not going to try to imitate Geraldine's voice because I probably wouldn't be able to talk the rest of the time today. But it was the devil made me do it. And that was what he was famous for. In fact, is you could order t-shirts with Flip Wilson's picture and it says the devil made me do it. And I'm sure they're probably still on Amazon.com to this day. So he was, he was maybe a talented comedian, but he's a really lousy theologian. Because especially if you're a Christian, the devil cannot make you sin. You can choose to listen to his voice. You can choose to fall to that temptation that he's offering you. But the devil cannot make a child of God sin. And that's why we are responsible for our own sin. Now, here's where we start writing some things down. And the first is there are four steps to sin happening. And you ought to know these. Again, this is worth writing in the back of your Bible. It's retaining forever. And you'll, of course, if you go out to hear the sermon recording and you print the PDF, you'll have those notes. But I really recommend writing these down. But there are four steps to sin. And so before we tell you the, the, the steps to not sin, let me tell you how sin happens. Because uh, Paul said one time that we are not ignorant of his devices. We need to know how things work. So here's how it starts. He says, first of all, there is a perverted desire. And a perverted desire is lust. And we're going to see this in just a minute from James because what does he say? But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He's drawn away of his own lust. That's a perverted desire and enticed. So lust is a perversion of a natural God-given desire. For example, God gives us a desire to sleep. Uh, I woke up at 2.37 this morning. I went to bed around 9 o'clock, woke up at 2.37. I had a desire to go back to sleep. My back wasn't going to let me do that. The desire was there, but the, the, uh, the flesh was not willing to cooperate. But there's, you know, we can have a desire to sleep, but some people have a perversion of that desire and they become sloths. In other words, the Bible actually says that they're like a, it's like they're hinged to their bed. Book of Proverbs says they flap over on the hinge from one side to another, but they can't ever get out of bed. That's slothfulness. Not getting up and doing a fair day's work for a fair day's wage is slothfulness. Uh, it's, it's being lazy, and it's easy to fall into that trap from time to time. And there are times when, quite frankly, you need to take a, you need to take a nap. I actually was talking to my boss about a week and a half ago, and I noticed every time I see him, he looks energetic, but he's, he's in California. He's two hours behind me. So usually it's earlier in the day when I'm talking to him. He hadn't had time to get tired yet. But he did admit to me that sometimes in the afternoon, he'd go take a 30-minute nap. And I thought, well, if my boss can do it, so can I. I, I haven't mastered that skill yet, but it's not a bad plan. But th- there's a difference between a God-given desire to rest and a perversion of that desire, which is I'm just going to stay in bed all the time. Don't want to do anything. 
God gives a desire for procreation within marriage. We have a desire if we are wired normally and if we haven't fallen prey to worse forms of fornication like sodomy, we have a desire to, for sex. But the reality is, is God designed that to be a gift within marriage. But if you pervert that desire, it becomes fornication, it becomes adultery, it becomes incest, it becomes sodomy, and all manner of other things. God gives us a desire to eat. And today's a special day. We're going to have special food later. And, but if you eat too much, and that's called a gluttony. If you make a habit of it, that's called having a surfeit, S-U-R-F-E-I-T. That's the word. If you don't have that in your vocabulary, stick it in there. It's actually used in the King James Version of the Bible, S-U-R-F-E-I-T, which means to always have an excess of something. So we have a surfeit of food and we're, we're gluttonous, which means we always eat more than is necessary for us. Well, that's a perversion. Uh, God gives us the desire to steward his possessions for his glory. And so when God gives us a paycheck, guess what? That paycheck doesn't actually belong to us. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 8, It is the Lord thy God that giveth thee power to get wealth. And the Bible is very clear that all wealth belongs to the Lord. The cattle in 10,000 hills are all his, even if you happen to be a rancher that takes care of a couple of thousand of them. They're still the Lord's cattle. They belong to him. We're stewards. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We're to be faithful servants to the Lord, take care of what he's been gracious enough to give us. But we can... Uh, Instead, pervert that desire and we can become thieves, we can become selfish, and, and these attitudes are perversions. So they're lust. So look again what he says, James 1.14. But each one or everyone is tempted when he's drawn away or dragged away here of his own lust and enticed or enticed by his own desires. I select some English Bible. Now we need to, we need to point out two, two different words. Drawn away, which is what the King James says, and I actually like that better than dragged away is actually a Greek term that means to use a fishing lure. Now, I love to fish. I'm not always very good at it. But every now and then in my fishing experience, and it's, I've been too long since I've been fishing, but every now and then in my fishing experience, I found a lure that just really seemed to work. So years ago, I was in Nacogdoches, Texas, and I went to a pond that was owned by one of my deacons, and he gave me free reign to go down there anytime I wanted to fish. And I had this orange and yellow topwater lure. And you would throw it out and you'd give a little jerk to the line and it had a little curve on the front of it and it would push the water from in front of it. You'd hear this little popping sound on top of the water. Now, I have discovered that the hot water lures only work at certain times of the year under certain conditions, and I've never understood the science behind angling, which is the sport of catching bass. Uh, but I, I just happened to luck out that day, and, and on that lure, I caught about seven bass, most of which were over two pounds. We had a big fish fry that night. The deacon and I cleaned all the scales off, and we, we cooked bass, and there's nothing better than fresh cooked, uh, freshly caught and fresh cooked bass. I love it. But, you know, I, another time I went out there, tried that same lure, and I made a bad mistake. I, I uh, threw it out, and I hooked it over a tree when I was casting, and I never saw that, that lure again. And no matter which, how I went back to the store to try to buy other lures, it didn't do that. But let's think about why did they bite this thing? Because to them, it was acting like and looking like food, and the fish saw the potential for food but could not see the hooks. Now, doesn't that describe temptation? We see 
a, 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 an opportunity to meet one of our desires that maybe is becoming perverted, but we don't see the damage that's going to be done. We don't see the hooks. That's what it means to be drawn away. It means to be uh, pulled aside for a potential benefit, but you don't see the damage that comes with it. Now, the second word, enticed, has a similar meaning. It means to bait an animal trap. It means that you, and you've all seen the cartoons, right? You put the little carrot underneath the box and tie the carrot to the stick, and the rabbit goes underneath the box, and while he's chewing the carrot, at some point the stick falls, and the box falls on top of the rabbit, and lo, you've caught it. Or, you know, maybe it's one of those traps that some, there's some kind of clamp that clamps around the animal's legs, but there are always a, a temptation to go after something, and the animal sees the bait but doesn't comprehend the trap. Uh, to catch eagles, uh, which is illegal, but those who used to do so would spread a net out. By the way, Proverbs talks about this. He says the devil spreads a net in the sight of any bird, and then he kind of covers the net up with some straw and grass, and then he'll put some fish right in the middle of the net. So when the bird of prey comes down to get the fish, then the, the net is sprung and captures the, the bird. But basically, it again is seeing a, a opportunity to fulfill a lust without seeing the destruction that comes with it. So it's important to understand that. So desire is the first step. Now the second step in our, our falling away from the Lord is the disobedience. But look what it says. Then desire, or in King James, lust, when it has conceived gives birth to sin. Now let's talk about that, when it's conceived. Um, years ago I was in seminary and uh, uh, pretty much everybody I lived on campus with, they were uh, very smart, very intelligent men, excellent scholars, but, but there's, there's always one or two people, uh, and this is true I'm sure in college as well, but there was always one or two people in seminary they were just a little different, just a little strange. Uh, Judy and I used to constantly take one young gentleman back and forth uh, uh, from church, and uh, uh, we found out years later he was he was loner, he was awkward socially, he had something physically wrong with him. We found out years later that he had committed suicide, and that's really tragic. Uh, but we spent a lot of days hauling him back and forth uh, from school to his house. But we had a, a, a fellow... Um, a student whose wife was eight months pregnant, and it was pretty obvious. You know, she's way out there. You know she's pregnant. Everybody knows she's pregnant. Uh, but we had a, a, a brother from uh, another state. He's been in here in Texas for a long time, and uh, he was a little socially awkward himself. He had not yet been married. He, he has been married for a lot of years since then. But, but he was just a little awkward, and he didn't quite understand the meaning of all the vocabulary words. So one day he sees this woman's husband walking down the sidewalk and he's inquiring about the wife and she's eight months pregnant and he says, has she conceived yet? And my brother said, uh, my brother in Christ said, uh, yes, uh, she conceived about eight months ago. So conceived means that moment when a human life starts when a father and mother get together. And what James is saying, there is a moment at which disobedience happens, and it's when the father and the mother of temptation get together. Now, what are those two things? It is two things. It's this. It's lust, which we just read about. Lust when it hath conceived. So we know lust is one of them. What's the other thing? It's your will. It's when you decide to sin. 
It's when you make it up in your mind to sin. So, for example, you don't actually have to uh, take a woman who's not your wife uh, out on a date and then take her back to a hotel room and then commit sexual immorality with her for you to have that sin. This is why Jesus said, if you look after another woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Why? Because the temptation, the desire was there, and at some point in your mind you thought, I'd really like to do this. And at that moment, sin is born. It says, lust when it hath conceived. In other words, when your, your will gets together with your perverted desire, it says it gives birth to sin. So you don't actually have to follow through. You just have to decide that you would like to follow through. And in that, uh, in God's eyes, that is sin. And this is what it says. Then desire after it has conceived gives birth to sin. So when is sin Born when the will decides to act upon the lust. Not when it's actually carried out, not when the physical act occurs, but when the decision is made. And so sin is born. Jesus, again, said in Matthew 5, You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone that looks after a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just when you look, when you make the decision that that's something you want to do. And then what is the final step of sin? It's death. It's death. Now you have to think, well, wait a minute, I've sinned and I haven't died. Oh, yeah, you have. You died spiritually (laughs) when you you sin. There's a lot of ways you can die. In fact, there are sins that lead to physical death. Now let's face it, Adam and Eve would have never died had they not sinned because the Bible is very clear that it was by sin that death entered into mankind. And ever since then, everyone that's ever been born has been born with a sin nature. By the way, here's, here's a little interesting thing to think about. God told Adam not to eat of this tree, and then he says this. In the day that you eat of that tree, you shall die. Well, last time I I read my Bible, Adam and Eve ate of the tree, and they lived another 900 years. So was God joking? Was God wrong? No, they died spiritually that day. Now their physical death came 900 years later, but that day they ceased to have an active fellowship with God. Because sin stood between them and God. And they had to then learn how to bring offerings to their God. And they had to learn to ask forgiveness. And then they started fighting with each other. And then there were problems between their kids. And one of their kids killed another one of their kids. And sin's been in the world ever since then. And see, it's a problem. But there's some kind of death. And quite frankly, there are still sins today that lead to death. Suicide is a sin. It leads to death. There are other sins, though, that people commit that sometimes result in certain kinds of diseases that very often lead to death. And then there's moral death because if you commit certain kinds of sin, you lose your moral reputation. You lose your own sense of morals. You lose your own sense of values. And I have seen people that were once very godly that suddenly have a whole different sense of morality because a a man's Morality dictates this theology, and he will change this theology to match whatever his morality is. Uh, I got an email a number of years ago. I, I saw a former classmate of mine, and not only was it a former classmate of mine, I had performed his wedding ceremony to a girl from my church. Very beautiful, sweet, lovely girl, she and her sister both. And so I just asked this particular gentleman, I said, how, how is Diane? That was his wife's name. I said, how's Diane? And I was expecting to hear some good news. And he says, oh, well, Diane and I aren't married anymore. I said, what in the world happened? He says, oh, well, 
she thought I spent too much time pastoring the church. She didn't understand that's what God called me to do. And he's blaming it all on her because he was so dedicated to God and to the ministry that she was complaining about it. Well, then I found out later from uh, <laughs> our seminary professor who knew the situation up close and personal that the reality was that he started taking martial arts lesson and he started having a, a crush on the woman who was the, the sensei teaching the karate course and he started committing adultery with her. And one day he tells us why we're going to move back to Jacksonville, Texas. And so she says, okay, and they pack up and they move back. And then after he unloads everything in the house, he says, by the way, I'm not staying here. And he leaves her. He had just changed his whole moral nature and he basically has stamped himself forever as not being worthy to pastor a church again and of being a person of poor moral character. Well, you can also have a death to your testimony and to your witness. Certain sins so mar our reputation that nobody will ever listen to us again. They're going to see us as, oh, well, he talks a good game, but he's not the real deal. Here's why he did such and such. And then it can bring a death to your marriage. It can bring a death to your family. Certain sins do. The end of all sin is death. So it's important for us to understand it starts with a, a desire that's perverted, that's lust. And then there is a decision that's made that leads to disobedience because when your will couples with the lust, then you have disobedience. And then the disobedience always leads to death. And then we need to understand that process. Now... How do you handle temptation? This is where you really got to write that down if you hadn't written anything else down. If you got a pen, write it down. If not, get it from somebody later. But uh, most companies have what they call a standard operational procedure or a SOP. And uh, the fact is we have software at IBM called Runbook and uh, it has, uh, it's coded and when a certain problem comes up it'll automatically pop up what the solution is and then you can either take the steps manually or you can click a button and the software will take the corrective steps for you. But there's a standard way of solving certain problems and it's documented for you. And he says, do not err my beloved brethren and then he's going to tell us how to do this. So here's step number one. And that's what we've just done, and that is we need to recognize the process of sin. How does sin happen? There's a desire, there's a decision, there's a disobedience, and there's death, and it happens that same way every time. You will find out that there will never be a sin that you give into that you didn't go through those steps. A desire, a decision, a disobedience, and some kind of death. Maybe it's just temporary death to your fellowship with the Father that you have to ask forgiveness for. So we need to understand that there, we need to be alert to spiritual danger. We need to know when we feel a desire welling up within us, it ought to wave a red flag and say, whoa, if I don't stop right now, I'm going to wind up with some kind of death in my life. I need right now to abandon this desire right now. I need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to not sin. Number two. And that is, since all sin ends in death, we need to remember the penalty of sin. So I need to recognize the pattern, but then I need to remember the penalty. What is that penalty? It's some kind of death. Now, when I've been traveling, and most of the times when I travel, it's to the Washington, D.C. area for work, and I usually teach classes to the Defense Department, but I'll stay in a hotel, and most hotels have a a couple of channels on it that we would not have in any of our homes 
but their channels were pornography on him. And you're there, there's nobody to see that you're there, and the devil will whisper in your ear, once you flip over that channel, nobody will ever know. But I'm always reminded in my spirit that God sees everything I do. The day and the night are alike unto him. You can't turn off the lights when God doesn't see what you do. In fact is, it even says he knows your thoughts before you recognize them. That's scary. So I just know that if I were to give in to that sin, it could damage or bring a death to my marriage. It could bring a death to my ministry. I could lose the blessings of God if I'm out of fellowship with him. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth so that he can show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. I just don't want to lose God's blessing. I have too many of them. I can't afford that. I can't afford to lose God's blessing. So what I do, I remember that if I mess up, I might lose his blessing. Now, I will never cease to be a child of God because Jesus Christ is in my heart, but I could lose his blessing. I don't want to do that. Now, let's give some examples. And, of course, if Moses had known that the second time he struck the rock, that he would not, because of that, he would never be allowed in the promised land, I think he'd have thought twice about hitting that rock with a stick. But let's take an example we all probably know even better, and that's David. Now, David usually went out to battle with his men, but on this one particular occasion, he decided to stay home. And his men are out fighting a battle with the Philistines, and David's walking along the top of his palace, and he happens to look down next door, and the next door neighbor, her wife's name was Bathsheba, she was bathing herself on the roof of her house, and he looked at her, and he what desired, there's that word, that's that lust I was talking about, always starts that way. He desired her, and then he makes a decision to invite her over to the palace, and then they disobeyed together, and he defiled her. And then what happened as a result of that? Well, she got pregnant. He knew the news was going to come out, so he tried to invite her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to come home from battle and to spend some time with his wife. That way, when she had the baby, Uriah would think it was his baby. Problem was, Uriah was a mighty man of valor, which means he had a great moral code, and he said, I will not go in and enjoy the comfort of my house and enjoy the company of my wife when my men are in battle. He was too noble to do that. So that ruined David's plan. So he then had to tell his men, I want you to put Uriah at the front of the battle, and when the battle gets really hot, I want everybody else to fall back and let the Philistines kill Uriah. And Uriah died. Basically, he was murdered. He was plotted against. Now, if, and then, the problems are not over yet because then the baby dies. And then not only did the baby die, but God says, because you, you've done these things, the sword's never going to depart from your house. And before you know it, you have one of his sons that rapes his half-sister Tamar. Then you have another son, Absalom, who goes and kills the son that raped his half-sister Tamar. And then Absalom sits outside the gates of, of the city telling everybody, oh, you don't want to see my dad. He's not going to listen to you anyway. But if I were king, here's what I would do. And then he drew the people's hearts away. And before you know it, the kingdom was splitting and half of them are going out. After Absalom, a few loyalists were staying with David, and David had to flee his own palace and his own throne to run away from his own son for a while. Now, if David had known all that was going to happen when he glanced at Bathsheba, if he'd have thought there are going to be consequences, what do you think he'd have done? I think he'd have turned tail and run back inside. But see, this is that thing the fish don't see the hooks. David didn't see what would happen. 
Someone once said, and I had a pastor I served with for seven years, and he loved to quote this. He says, sin takes you places that you don't want to go. It keeps you there longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. That's a really good, succinct way of talking about sin. Well, here's the next step. So you need to, first of all, remember, you recognize the process of sin. You need to know when it's starting. Secondly, you need to remember the consequences of sin, which is death. Thirdly, you need to remember God's goodness toward you. Let's look at David again. David was uh, had already sinned. He's already had to make sure Uriah died. And then one day, uh, Samuel comes to him. And uh, let me first of all, read this scripture here, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is continually coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variable, it's neither shadow of turning or there's no change. God is always trying to give to us. By the way, if you haven't received anything from the Lord lately, it's not because the Lord quit giving, it's because you shut the top of your Tupperware container. You know, he's still pouring, but a lot of us, we, we, we seal ourselves in. We seal ourselves away from the Lord by virtue of our sin. He's trying to bless us, and we can't be blessed because we have sealed ourselves off from the Lord's blessings by our sin. But look what this is telling us. God's gifts are perfect. He doesn't give a gift that has sorrow with it, and he gives gifts that glorify himself so that others will know that he's a source of gift. And his gifts are constantly coming down to us, and he gives in character with his own he gives in character because he can't change. His gifts always reflect his character. It's like uh, Brother Stephen said this morning, it's a stupid question to ask, can God make a rock so big he can't build it because God will not do anything inconsistent with his own character. only thing God, you know, God can't sin. There's something God can't do. He can't sin. He can't be tempted. He can't tempt other people. But, but what... Would have David done if he'd have stopped before the sin with Bathsheba and thought about how much God had blessed him? And so if you want to know, Samuel comes to him and Samuel, first of all, tells him a story about a guy whose sheep was stolen. The guy only had one lamb and it was like a pet to the family. Meanwhile, this other guy has hundreds of sheep, but they're on the back 40 and somebody comes over for dinner and rather than send for one of his sheep to be killed and slaughtered and feed his guests, he steals his neighbor's one sheep the only sheep he had, actually. And he kills it and feeds his family for dinner. And David is incensed. See, David has a sore spot in his character about sheep because once upon a time, he tried to take care of the shepherds that belonged to a guy. And then when, when it was time to shear the sheep, he went to this guy and says, you know, I've been watching your shepherds and I think we should be entitled to some, some wool and to some mutton because we've been providing the service for you. And the guy says, well, his name was Nabal. And Nabal says, I don't have any contract with you. You're the enemy of the king. Why should I help you? And David got so furious he was ready to kill every man in that family. And his wife, Nabal's wife, Abigail, makes an appeal and keeps David from killing everybody. And that's another whole sermon unto itself. But what's interesting is when Samuel tells him a story, it pricks a sore spot. And David is furious. He is, excuse me, when Nathan tells him a story, David is furious. And Nathan tells him the story and he gets so mad that he, he says, you know, tell me where this person is. I'll have him dragged through the streets. And here's what Nathan says. You are the man, or King James, thou art the man. Love that phrase. 
He says, you, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you as king over Israel. And then he's going to tell, remind David how much God had given to him. He says this, I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you the household of your master and the women of your master into your lap. I also gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In other words, you've been made king of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have added more if you just asked. So what he's doing is telling David, hey, listen, I gave you a kingdom. I gave you all the wealth, all the family, all the handmaids, everything of Saul, and I made you king over Israel and over Judah, and if you just wanted something more, you could have asked me. And if David had stopped to think about how good God had been, and, and, and by the way, this is the one that stops me cold in my tracks when I'm traveling and I'm tempted to do something by the devil because he says, hey, nobody will ever know. I think, no, I'm too blessed already. I can't lose that blessing. Remember the goodness of God toward you. And then number four, last one. Remember God's divine nature within you. Remember God's divine nature within you. James 1.18, by his will, he gave birth to us through the message of truth so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, I mentioned earlier that sin had two parents. You got lust and you got your will. All of us had a mother and a father. Well, guess what? In salvation, you had to have two parents. You may not have ever thought about this, but two things had to be present for you to be saved. One had to be the word of truth. Now, that doesn't mean that you could be saved, that you were never saved unless there was a Bible on the table. But at some point for you to be saved, you had to be presented certain spiritual truths. And here they are. You're a sinner. You've told lies. You've stolen stuff. You've thought unkind thoughts about others. You're a sinner and so am I. All, I know that for a fact because it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. Number two. There's another fact I need to know. Jesus loved me so much that he died for us. In Stephen's lesson this morning, he hit upon Ephesians 3.14. He says that you may be comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the, the width, the length, the depth, and the height of the love of God in Christ Jesus. I've heard a preacher, and I think he got a really good interpretation of that, that the width of God's love is for God so loved the world. That's how wide God's love is. The, the length of God's love is that he gave his only begotten son. The depth of his love is that everyone who believes in him should not perish. It, goes, it saves us out of the depths of hell. And the height of his love is that he gives us eternal life. That's a beautiful way. It's, it certainly preaches well whether or not that was the intention. It, I, but I think it's true. Now, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we had to know that God loved us and that Jesus died for us, that Jesus took the penalty for my sins. Okay? Now, what else do I have to know? I have to know that Jesus didn't stay dead. I have to believe in the resurrection. Why would we be here today celebrating a resurrection if it didn't happen? In fact, is why would any of us ask Jesus in our heart if he's dead? Muhammad is still dead. Buddha is not only dead, but you can go to India and visit a temple and see the teeth out of his skull and worship his teeth if you would like to. But Jesus' grave was empty three days later and everybody in Jerusalem wanted to know where he was and nobody ever found him except the people that ate and talked and walked with him and saw him go back up into heaven. He's alive. 
Now that's different. He rose again from the dead. And then what else do I have to know? I have to do something about it. I can't just believe it. That's not good enough. And I've heard preachers, I, I was, when we were living in seminary, there was a very narrow wall between me and the next apartment. One of my brothers from Mississippi is listening to this tape message, and this brother was deaf, uh, pretty much deaf, so he would crank the volume all the way up. And I heard him listening to this fundamental Baptist preacher who says, all you have to do to be saved is believe. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to, you don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to ask for anything. You don't have to repent. You just got to believe. And I thought, oh, that's, that's wrong. Luke chapter 13, verse 3, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke chapter 13, verse 5, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And John 1, 12, it's not as many as believed him. It's as, but as many as received him. To them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There will be a lot of people who believe that never received, and they don't show up in glory. And that's sad. It's just like I can pull out a, a dollar bill right now, and I can show it to you, and I can ask you if it's a real dollar bill, and you'll say, yeah, that's a real dollar bill. And I say, well, if it's a real dollar bill, and there's one right there. I said, I, you know, why don't you go to Dairy Queen and buy you an ice cream cone, and then I put it back in my pocket you believed it was a dollar bill, but it did you no good whatsoever. The only way you're going to go to Dairy Queen and get one of those soft-serve ice cream cones is if you receive the dollar bill in your hand. I don't even know if you can buy a soft-serve cone for under a dollar anymore. Used to. Used to. They were 49 cents. Maybe they're more now. But the point is, you have to receive Jesus for him to do any good for you. So we have to receive it, and that's what's crucial for us. See, we have a parentage. For physically, we have a dad and a mom in sin. It's our lust and our will. But to be justified, that is to go to heaven, it's the Word of God plus the Spirit of God has to come together. See, Jesus also said, he says, Verily I send you, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He said in another place, unless the Spirit draw a man, he cannot come to me. The Spirit of God has to be there too. By the way, if you're going to share the gospel with somebody... Before you do, say a quick flare prayer. God, would you send your spirit to talk to this person's heart? Because you can't win him to the Lord, only the Spirit of God can. Now, we need to rely on unchanging God because James here says that we are begotten by the word of truth. Now, he, Jesus said this about the word, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And of course in John 1, John calls Jesus the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, it says in Malachi, I, I am the Lord, I change not. Uh, and in Hebrews it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me encourage you to do something. Do not base your place of worship upon the traditions of men or on the ability of a church to offer sacraments to do something for you. Our, our faith has to be based on one thing, and that is the Word of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. No church can do a ceremony and make you a Christian. But there are churches that teach as long as you're baptized, you don't ever have to ask Jesus in your heart. And they're going to send a lot of people to hell with that doctrine, a damnable doctrine. But we need to understand God is unchanging and we have to rely on his unchanging word. And you can't rely on the traditions of men because they change from moment to moment. But what is he says? Of his own will beget he us that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, we're children of the heavenly father. We're children of the king. My father is God. I belong to him. And wherever I go, I have to represent him. 
Sometimes your kids will make you proud. Sometimes they'll bring you shame. Sometimes they bring you heartache. But I need to make sure that everywhere I go, I'm pleasing my Heavenly Father because that's my real Father. That's the one I have for all eternity. And if He's my Father and He's the King, why should I serve the children of the enemy? You see, this is why we need to remember God's divine nature within us because if we're really born again, we shouldn't serve God's enemy, which is sin. We should serve Him. And as a Christian, whether you like it or not, the world will hold you to a higher standard. There will be things you could do that might not necessarily be sin, but they might be interpreted. This is why Paul tells us we ought to avoid every appearance of evil. Because they're going to hold us to a higher standard. And he says we're the first fruits. And by the way, first fruits, whenever you got a harvest, you gave the first part of it to God. Always. You gave the first part to God. It was a reminder that we got nothing from the harvest without God's grace and without God providing for it. And we should remember that we're a first fruits. We belong to God and our job is to worship Him. Just like you gave the first fruits to the Lord, we should give our lives to the Lord. And they were dedicated to the Lord and they can only be used for His purpose. What that means, James is saying, you are the first fruits. You're dedicated to God and you should never serve sin. And this is how he's encouraging his readers. So what now? We're at the end. What now? Do you realize that the resurrection not only declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God with power, as Paul says in Romans 1, but it is the reason that we do not have to serve sin, as Paul says in Romans 6. I am buried with Him by baptism into Christ's death, And like as he was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so I also should walk in newness of life. Do you realize that Christians are in Christ? It's interesting for every one time that the Bible says that Christ is in us, it says three times that we are in Christ. That's the bigger truth. Which means that when Christ died, our old man was crucified with him that that our body of sin might be destroyed. That when he rose up from the dead, we're to walk in newness of life. And when he is seated next to his father in the heavenlies, even so I also have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. So, as Brother Steve comes to lead us in a song, here's the question. Would you ask God today for the grace to live a life in victory over sin and temptation? I hope you wrote down those four steps to overcoming temptation because they, after a while, they come kind of naturally and it's, it's important to us uh, that they do. Would you look at number two?